Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are now listening to my dad's podcast. Obviously, there's a direct relationship between chorioamnionitis found on histological analysis of the placenta and inflammation of the umbilical cord, a condition called finucitis. But what does this inflammation of the umbilical cord actually mean for the baby? Is it related to adverse neonatal outcomes? And are there cases related to bacterial infection alone? In this podcast, we will review the data behind the clinical significance of umbilical cord inflammation. In 2017, the American College of OBGYN released committee opinion number 712, which had to do with the management of intrapartum intramniotic infection. Intraamniotic infection, or IAI, also known as clinical chorioamnionitis, is an infection that gives resultant inflammation of any combination of the amniotic fluid, placenta, fetus, fetal membranes, or the decidua. IAI is a common condition noted among preterm and term laboring patients. However, most of the cases of clinical intramniotic infection detected and managed by OBGYNs or other obstetric care providers will be noted among term patients in labor because that obviously is the more common. Intramniotic infection can be associated with acute neonatal morbidity, and this can include neonatal pneumonia, meningitis, sepsis, and death. Maternal morbidity from intramniotic infection also can be significant and may include dysfunctional labor, requiring increased intervention. It can also be associated with postpartum uterine atony and hemorrhage, endometritis, peritonitis, sepsis, adult respiratory distress syndrome, and rarely death are all potential complications. Recognition of intrapartum intramniotic infection and implementation of treatments recommendations are essential steps that effectively can minimize the morbidity and mortality for both women and their newborns. According to the ACOG, a panel of maternal and neonatal experts recommended separating intramniotic infection into three different categories. The first category is isolated maternal fever. The second is suspected clinical intramniotic infection, and the third category is actually the focus of this podcast, that is confirmed intramniotic or histological infection. The new definitions distinguish between suspected and confirmed intramniotic infection according to clinical and laboratory or pathological findings and provide standardized temperature criteria to diagnose intrapartum fever. So let's get into this now. According to the Expert Workshop Executive Summary, isolated maternal fever is defined as either a single oral temperature of 39 degrees Celsius or greater, 
Under isolated maternal fever, it's also noted that an oral temperature of 38 to 38.9 degrees Celsius that persists when the temperature is repeated after 30 minutes also falls in this category. For the second category, suspected intramniotic infection is based on clinical criteria. These include maternal intrapartum fever and one or more of the following, maternal leukocytosis, purulent cervical discharge, or fetal tachycardia. Now, the third category is confirmed intraamniotic infection, and this is based on a positive amniotic fluid test, like a gram stain, glucose level, or a culture that's consistent with infection or, as is the focus of this podcast, placental pathology demonstrating histological evidence of placental infection or inflammation. We're going to get into that in just a minute, so hang on to that. Now, in clinical practice, confirmed intramniotic infection among women in labor at term will most commonly be made after delivery based on histopathological study of the placenta. Diagnosis of confirmed histological intramniotic infection that's done in the postpartum period, however, and here's a clinical pearl, does not alter the post delivery maternal treatment. In other words, if she is not already or has received antibiotics, finding a pathological diagnosis of chorioamnionitis does not mean that she requires antibiotics unless the clinical picture demands it. This is the focus of our podcast and this issue of histological chorioamnionitis and more specifically when it extends to the umbilical cord, finucitis, and its clinical implications deserves mention. So let's look into that now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Acute histological chorioamnionitis is the most frequent diagnosis in placental pathology reports and is generally considered to represent the presence of intramniotic infection or amniotic fluid infection syndrome. When the inflammatory process affects the chorion and the amnion, this is the term acute histological chorioamnionitis. Yet, Acute chorioamnionitis, from a pathological perspective, can occur with sterile intramniotic inflammation. This occurs in the absence of demonstrable microorganisms, and it can be induced by certain danger signals released under conditions of cellular stress. So that's a clinical pearl, that this histological finding of placental inflammation or chorioamnionitis does not necessarily mean microorganisms as their cause. Acute histological chorioamnionitis more appropriately reflects evidence of intraamniotic inflammation and not just intraamniotic infection. If the inflammatory process involves the umbilical cord, that's the umbilical vein, the umbilical arteries, or Wharton's jelly, this condition is called finucitis. This is the histological counterpart of the fetal inflammatory response syndrome. So here's a clinical pearl. 
inflammation of the basalis layer of the placenta is maternal response. However, inflammation of the umbilical cord is a fetal inflammatory response. Let's look at that more now. Before we get into the clinical implications of these placental and umbilical cord findings, we have to review where this inflammatory process actually comes from. Acute histological choreo is more frequently observed in the placentas of women who deliver after spontaneous labor at term than in the absence of labor, for example, a Schedule C-section. Moreover, the frequency of histological choreo is obviously higher the longer the duration of labor and with more advanced cervical dilation. So there's two very obvious explanations here. The first is that the frequency of microbial invasion of the amniotic cavity is higher in women in spontaneous labor at term with intact or ruptured membranes than in those without labor, and that's easy to understand. But the second may be more difficult to comprehend. And that's the alternative reason that labor per se is an inflammatory state alone. And this can cause the histological choreoamniotic inflammation that's seen on some pathological specimens. And this is unrelated to infection. Now keep in mind, this is a clinical pearl, that that has actually been proven because you can have histological choreoamnionitis with negative bacterial cultures. So where do these PMNs, these white blood cells on this pathological evaluation, where do they come from? Well, neutrophils in acute histological choreoamnionitis are of maternal origin, and this has been proven through genetic and molecular studies. But in contrast, inflammation of the umbilical cord and the chorionic vessels of the chorionic plate of the placenta are of fetal origin. So once again, inflammation of the umbilical cord is of fetal origin. This conclusion is largely based on the understanding of the anatomy of these tissues, as neutrophils invading the walls of the umbilical vein and the arteries must migrate from the fetal circulation to enter the walls of these vessels. The umbilical vein is the first vessel to show inflammatory changes, and the presence of arteritis is evidence of a more advanced fetal inflammatory process. Systematic studies of the umbilical cord do suggest that acute finucitis begins as multiple discrete foci along the umbilical cord. This then progresses to a merging process where you get the entire cord inflamed. So insofar as the origin of white blood cells in the amniotic fluid in cases of IAI, the only study reported to date in cases of clinical chorioamnionitis with intact membranes also suggests that more than 99% of the neutrophils in the amniotic fluid actually come from the fetal component. All right, let's stop right there because I'm a clinician. I'm not a lab researcher. I'm in clinical practice. So now that we've done all that basic science, what does that mean? I mean, our whole purpose of this podcast is what is the clinical implication of finding funicitis on pathological examination of the placenta? What are we supposed to do with that information? Well, here it is. In brief, acute histological inflammation of the umbilical cord may be a flag of future adverse neonatal outcomes, whether the condition is due to microbial invasion or a sterile fetal inflammatory response. 
fetal inflammatory response syndrome, as some authors have described it, may be observed, again, without demonstrable microbial invasion of the amniotic cavity. And some have proposed that these cases represent the response to certain, quote, danger signals, end quote, which have a cellular stress at the root. The precise nature of these danger signals in this sterile intramniotic inflammatory condition has not yet been fully elucidated. Yet, there is proposed theories that this can result from insults that trigger cell death like necrosis, pyroptosis, or even apoptosis, and it could be the result of high oxidative stress or some other not clearly defined mechanism, but that puts the fetus at risk. Finucitis and definitely chronic vasculitis are the hallmarks for the fetal inflammatory response syndrome, a condition characterized by an elevation in fetal plasma concentrations of interleukin-6. This is associated with the impending onset of preterm labor in some studies. It's also associated with a higher risk of neonatal morbidity, so here it is. After adjustment for gestational age, the finding of finucitis has been linked to multi-organ fetal involvement. It's also been linked to neonatal sepsis, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, periventricular leukomalacia, and even cerebral palsy. So in brief, if the finding on histological review of the placenta and the umbilical cord shows finucitis, be on the lookout for any offending agent, subclinical infection, and make sure to relay the findings to the pediatric or neonatology team so that a proper clinical context can be made. Well, that wraps up our podcast covering histological chorioamnionitis and inflammation and possible infection of the umbilical cord, a condition called finucitis. It may be linked to adverse neonatal outcomes. So pay attention to those findings and remember, don't ignore these issues because it could be a hallmark of some issues to come. Thankfully, the overall incidence of adverse outcomes is still relatively low, but nonetheless, these findings can be a flag of a fetal inflammatory response syndrome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.